Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. We're going to get a new Masters 1000 champion in Toronto 2023, just like we got last year with Pablo Carreño Busta. And that much is known before the semifinals. I am uh, recording this right after quarterfinal Friday. So thought I'd check in, watched at least partially all of the matches today, and uh, I'll give some thoughts on those, a, an eventful day, uh, some some noteworthy results for sure. And let's talk about those. Fresh in my mind is Yannick Sinner. Just want to talk about him because this is a big deal. This is Sinner's best chance so far in his career to win his first Masters 1000 title. I mean, you could argue that he had a good chance against Hercotch, but he was very, very young. Um, so I, I would argue that this is a better chance no matter what happens from here. And you can't really hide from that pressure. I don't know how aware Yannick Sinner was going into tonight's match against Monfils. In the in the pre-match preparation, I don't know if he knows that Medvedev lost. I don't know if he knows that Alcaraz lost. Probably yes. Probably yes, but maybe no. I would say there's like a 0% chance that at this point, he doesn't understand the situation. At the very least, going into tomorrow, he knows Tommy Paul is his opponent. He probably knows what the other semifinal is. And that's pressure. That's a lot of pressure. He's going to have to handle it. He was in a similar situation at Wimbledon. We talked about it. His draw opened up like the Red Sea. And he he did great. He played really good tennis. He didn't get into any trouble in terms of just beating everyone in his path handedly. I think this is even harder. This can be an even tougher test. One, the players he has to beat better, better than what we were talking about with Wimbledon when he was trying to make his first major semifinal. And I just think winning a tournament, even though it's a Masters versus a Slam, I think winning a tournament is always harder than making a semi. So that's the test. Step one of the test, beating Gael Monfils. A-plus performance. This was really, really good. It's scintillating, honestly. Again, I'm putting the plus after the A because it felt like Sinner could hit the ball as hard as he possibly can. He could hit huge without missing. Uh, he didn't reinvent the wheel here. This is kind of what's great about Yannick Sinner's game is just how hard he hits the ball relentlessly off of both wings. It's not very complicated. 
And he moves pretty well. And he serves pretty well, also. Increasingly, he's serving well. Um, sometimes there can be erratic moments because he only has that one speed, because he's trying to just crush everything. And it just felt throughout this match, those erratic moments were not occurring. He was really just finding the court in a beautiful baseline rhythm. Absurd ground stroke speeds. Uh, Monfils also played really, really well. And this was a, a very highlight reel match. High, high quality entertainment. The one thing you can say about Monfils, he got sucked into Sinner's game. He played right into Yannick's hands. Gale has a tendency to do that. He kind of will mirror his opponent. He'll play his opponent's style, whatever that style may be. So sometimes Monfils will play a grinder and he'll grind. He'll play someone who gets crafty and likes a lot of cat and mouse. And Monfils will get crafty and play a lot of cat and mouse. In this case... He's playing a guy who just wants to slug it out from behind the baseline. And Monfils is like, oh, you want to slug it out? Let's slug it out. And Gale brought zero variety to the court in this match. Again, played really well. Great ball striking. Awesome movement. Uh, really, really amazing serving. Career high in aces. That kind of kept him in the match because he wasn't, he wasn't the better player from, from the back. But he was still good from the back. But he hit 99% topspin. He came to net four times in three sets. And he never really took any pace off the ball. Like, never played the high slow ball. Just never mixed it up at all. Like, he was just, it was just power to power. Slugging it out. And, you know, Yannick loves that. He never mixed in a drop shot. He didn't do any of that. So, he played great. But he played center's game, and that cost him. And I think when they were in the back, exchanging high-octane baseline blows, there were three Lamborghinis on the court. The center forehand, the center backhand, the Monfils forehand. The weak link was Gale's backhand. There were three Lamborghinis on the court. There was one Lexus. It's not bad, but it's not a Lamborghini. I'll say it's a Lexus. Monfils' backhand was the Lexus. And it was just a little bit slower. It was giving Yannick too much time. Uh, sometimes he was having trouble absorbing on that wing. And when he was getting pushed back with by center's power, and he was hitting backhands from really, really deep in the court, it's tough for him to really be effective with his two-hander from 10 feet behind the baseline. Just doesn't have the weight of shot off of that wing to really be effective there. And he was running into that problem. So that is also an area where I think Sinner kind of found the upper hand. Let's go to the next guy. Yannick Sinner will face in the semis Tommy Paul, who beat Carlos Alcaraz for the second time in a row in Canada. He did it in Montreal last year. He does it in Toronto this year. It's also his first win over a world number one. Arguably Paul's biggest career victory. Very simple on Tommy. Tommy 
is not a top 10 player, in my opinion, because of his forehand. I think that's what holds him back. You give him Taylor Fritz's forehand just to swap out another American. You give him Taylor Fritz's forehand, I think he's a top. I think he's in the top 10 today. Now, he's at a career-high 12, so he's knocking on the door anyway. But I think he's already there. When he has a great forehand day, and when that shot is performing at the highest level that it's capable of, he is a nightmare. He's spectacular. He's a problem. You play Tommy Paul on a great forehand day, you're in trouble. You're kind of in trouble. I'm not saying Alcaraz at his best would have been overmatched here. No. Uh, but most players, Tommy Paul, great forehand day. You're going to have a rough time. Because that is the part of his game that holds him back. But not always. I have seen at times, I have seen Tommy's forehand click for matches, for tournaments, Never really for like a really long time. I've never seen Tommy's forehand be good for, you know, two weeks in a row. But I've seen it over short stretches. And in this match, it was just really, really good. And then his whole game comes together. Uh, his cross-court forehands from neutral were excellent. And it wasn't really letting Alcaraz set his feet. It was forcing Alcaraz to hit a lot of running forehands. Look, Alcaraz doesn't have a bad running forehand. But boy, it's a hell of a lot worse than when he gets to hit it from stationary. And he usually goes cross-court. He's a little bit predictable. He's a little bit more erratic when you put him on the run. He's not, I mean, and that's true for a lot of players. But, I mean, we'll say this. It's not like, it's not like Djokovic when he's on the run with the forehand where it's like, all right, you know, he's totally, you're not really gaining much from putting him on the run. Um, with Alcaraz, you are. And I felt like Tommy's cross-court forehands were just good enough to do it consistently. And then he would go behind him a lot and just never really let him get comfortable um, using his forehand from the middle of the court or from the backhand side of the court. And then, of course, when Tommy had attacking forehands, chances to step inside the court and finish, it's hard against Alcaraz's defense and speed. It's really hard. And Tommy's forehand was up to the task. And that was, that was a big deal. I'll, I'll also say that Paul is one of the hardest players in the world to drop shot. I'd really put him up there. Uh, he minds his court position. He doesn't really allow himself to drift too far back in the court, generally. He moves forward so quickly. He's got great a great first step, awesome acceleration, high-end speed. So he's probably in my top five quickest players coming in to track down the drop shot. Then once he's there, he's got really good hands and he's got awesome volleys. There is nothing about Tommy Paul's game, his skill set, that really allows you to drop shot effectively. Nothing. So... That makes it a good matchup against Alcaraz. Carlitos was uh, 0 for 2 on drop shots in that 2-3 game where he got broken in the third set. Uh, he did it on, eh, I forget which points. Um, 
but obviously that's two of the four points that Paul won. And uh, one of them was actually a great drop shot. I can't believe Tommy got there. And then Alcaraz hit a, a lob that was just too short, and Paul was able to get back and hit the overhead. Um, I, I think Paul was able to also kind of stymie Alcaraz's attack when Carlitos was approaching his backhand. I think Alcaraz approached his backhand too often, needed to get it to the forehand more. And when you give Tommy's backhand a target, first of all, he's unbelievably athletic moving to his left. He can hit the open stance backhand. And uh, it stays, his passing shots off the backhand, they stay very low. They're very precise. And I thought he hit some very key backhand passing shots as well. And I'll also compliment Tommy on his precision when returning and getting that first ball of the Alcaraz backhand, deep to the Alcaraz backhand, to shut down the plus one game. Especially on second serve return, and I don't think that's so easy. Alcaraz has a heavy kick serve, and as a right-hander, the question is, are you going to be able to take that heavy kick serve and, and put the ball into the backhand corner consistently? Again, it's Paul's, it's Paul's backhand, which is... Uh, really a, a great pace absorber, incredibly precise, very consistent, stays low. It's it's a fantastic backhand, not for the flashy reasons that, that some of the other great backhands are. You know, it's not that big, it's not that powerful, but I'm telling you, it's doing so many other things at a at a really, really high level. And including on the return of serve, I, I thought he was just pinpointing it to Alcaraz's backhand. Again, Maybe Carlitos could have served a little bit more often to Tommy's forehand. Now to the Alcaraz side of things, the Carlitos performance. He didn't have it all week, particularly on the forehand side. It was just a struggle every single match, from the Shelton match to the Hercotch match to this match. Everything felt really, really hard. And I, I really was admiring Alcaraz's problem-solving skills and his ability to kind of find a way and stay positive, you know, and stay stay in the fight mentally, not beat himself. Like, all those things were really admirable this week, but at no point did he actually have his best game. It's kind of the same pattern. He would come out, he'd make a lot of aggressive errors, and then he'd kind of dial back the aggression to try to get consistent and just grit out victories and even did that in the second set here against Tommy and don't get me wrong I mean there were there were great moments where his level was really high against Hercotch there were moments in the second set against Tommy where where things were excellent but uh it, it just I don't feel like he was free to hit out on his forehand to aggressive targets at any point all week I just don't think the forehand was working so that was kind of hijacking his ability to play his best tennis. And I think it ended up being really exhausting mentally and physically to have to constantly be adjusting and to be battling yourself and to be trying to find your level and to be frustrated that you're not playing your best and to go, you know, three sets against Turkoc where you're blowing a 5-2 double break lead in the third set 
and having to stay on the court for an extra half hour and win a third set tiebreak. And then you come back the next day and then you play really badly in the first set again. And then in the second set, you're, you can't hold for 5-3. It takes you like 20 minutes. Uh, you're going to nine deuces at 4-3 because you can't get out of that game. And you finally, finally win the second set. And now you're playing your sixth set in the second day. And everything has just been exhausting mentally, I think, more than physically. It, it wore on him. And it, it's his fault, right? It's not an excuse. It's just, it, it's just I think... I think it was so hard for him to play his best tennis at every single step of the way. It just got really tiresome. And Tommy played great in the third set, as I mentioned. Semi-final, Tommy Paul, Yannick Sinner. I don't know if Tommy can, can play that well on the forehand again. And if he can't, I think Sinner can feast from the back forehand of forehand. I think Sinner can bludgeon the ball into that wing and have a lot of success uh, just attacking Paul's ability to absorb pace with his forehand, which uh, I don't think is a strength. Now, I mean, he did it well against Alcaraz here. I just don't know if he can do it again. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick Yannick here in this semifinal. Uh, Demon versus Fokina. Let me talk about Demonor's win over Medvedev. This was a classic Medvedev loss just classic. When I think about what Medvedev losses are usually like, I think about a match exactly like this. It felt like Medvedev just couldn't get the ball through the court. He's the speed demon. He's fast. He's very, very fast. It's going to take... Look, we all know Medvedev can't move forward and, and finish at net. He can't do that. So you're going to have to hit off, you know, you're going to have to find enough power off the ground to hit through one of the fastest and best court coverage players on a hard court, especially on tour. Medvedev didn't have it. Didn't have the power. The conditions weren't quick enough for him. Couldn't get through. That doesn't mean you're going to lose if you're Daniil Medvedev. You still have great consistency. You still have great shot tolerance. You still have great fitness. I thought that he was feeling very good physically. It seemed from the outside like Medvedev was feeling very good physically this week because he was doing a lot of running and just great shot tolerance. But another thing that Demonor is really good at, he is okay to hang back and play those lung busters. He is going to hang with Medvedev physically. And do that time and time again if need be. Go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Medvedev when it comes to sh uh, short-term endurance, consistency. All those things. So that's really not going to be... Medvedev is not going to find a path to victory by just keeping the ball in the court until his opponent collapses physically. It's not really going to happen. And Demon can find finishes by coming forward. Demonora does what Medvedev can't. Uh, I don't think Alex really has enough baseline power to hit through Medvedev on a consistent basis, but he can just come forward and volley, and he did that really, really well. So, you know, it's the second win that Demonor has had over Medvedev. He beat him in Paris last year as well. I, I do think it's a good matchup for Demon. Now, I understand that the overall head-to-head -head is still 4-2 to two for Daniil, but I think overall, it's still a good matchup for Demon. Um, 
Now, you look at how this match played out. Don't get me wrong. It's not like Demonor completely outplayed Medvedev. It's it's hard to really make that argument when you look at Demonor down 5-2 in the first set, down 5-1 in the first set tiebreak, down three set points in that first set tiebreak, wins the first set. So that was a steal. He's down a break in the second set twice. Not once, twice. He comes back to win the second set. He is mentally a beast, Demonor. He plays every point the same. He gives every point 100%. So that kind of thing allows him to do that. Uh, you know, at the same time, you look at the margins in this match, and Demonor was probably pretty kind of lucky and Medvedev pretty unlucky that he lost this match, at least in straight sets, because boy, did Daniil have a boatload of opportunities. Uh, technically, the one thing that I will harp on with Medvedev is his second serve. Vulnerable really hurt him in this match. And at this point, man, with Medvedev, you can look at the baseline pow power, which at times this year has just looked much, much, much better. And I think Daniil knows that that he needs to get back to what he did on the clay during Rome and find a way to just hit bigger off the ground. I think that'll be the main focus for him coming into Cincinnati. But other than that, he's got one of the weaker second serves in the top 10. He double faulted way too much in this match, in big spots, hurt him. Last thing on this match, uh, something that I just found absolutely fascinating. Both players talked about the conditions and they had opposite things to say. Daniil was saying that the, the ball was getting really fluffy and that they had to play these really, really, really long rallies and that it was really, really slow out there. Demon was saying that uh, the ball, he said the opposite. It was absolutely remarkable. He was like, these balls actually get really, really quick. Even, even when they're played with a lot, they, they stay quick. And he feels like he can attack very, very effectively. All right. I mean, that's just kind of an example of why you need to kind of take what players say with a bit of a grain of salt when you have two players saying the opposite thing. Now, I, I tend to trust the winning player more. Usually it's the losing player who's kind of making some rationalizations in his head about why what happened happened. But I mean, it's just kind of funny to see that. I that That's that's all. I just wanted to throw it out there. I don't have any anything to say um, on it other than that. Fakina crushed Matthew McDonald. I actually missed most of this match. Uh, but he's crushed everybody except Rude. I mean, what a run. He killed Zverev. Who did he play in the first round? Um, he killed JJ Wolf. 6-love, six 6-2. Six this was 6-4, six 6-2. Six Rude was a third set tiebreak. That was close. But you know with Fakina, you guys who have followed the show, you know how I feel about his ability. He's... Uh, Closing in on a top 20 berth. He's at a career high 20, either 23 or 22 right now. So he is very close to shedding his title as the most gifted player outside the top 20. I hope he's able to do that. He's close. I've seen all year 
how hard he's working to try to fix his head. I have seen it visually. I noticed it at first in the Middle East where I, I just see him meditating on court and taking deep breaths and, you know, sometimes closing his eyes at changeovers and, and just trying to stay calm and control his emotions. And I, I think it hasn't always worked. And maybe at times it's backfired because he's kind of holding too much inside of him. And he still needs to maybe fine-tune. At some point, maybe, and maybe it's now, he's just going to figure out how to manage his emotions on court. And one thing that he's talked about in interviews a lot with uh, with Prakash of Tennis Champ, Prakash Armitage, is uh, how he's just trying to stay humble. Uh, as opposed to in the past where after big wins... He would, he would just be on cloud nine. He would be so happy, so pumped, so excited that he would, it would all come crashing down on him when he had to wake up the next day and play another match. So he's trying to remedy that. He's reading a lot of books. He's working on it. I don't know what's going to happen, but he's in his second career Masters 1000 final. Again, this is a huge chance for Sinner. He's the only top 10 player remaining. He's the only player remaining who's been in multiple Masters 1000 finals. On paper, Tommy Paul is going to be the tougher one for him. Uh, but I actually think Demonor, who I do think will win the semifinal, um, he is not going to beat himself. And he's going to make a lot of balls. And I think that'll give him a good chance here. I think Alex has a, will, will have a good chance just by staying in every point, fighting in every point. Uh, if he has nervous opponents, if he has opponents who are wavering because of the moment, I think ADM is, is pretty well equipped to take advantage of that. And uh, I'm fascinated to see just how Sinner is going to handle this because he is the best player. He is the best player left. If he plays his best tennis, he's going to win this thing. But he's going to have to deal with the pressure. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.